Hi, I'm Adam Miller. And I'm Sarah Sweet. And welcome to Food on the Radio. Hey, Sarah, how are you? Good morning, Adam. Happy Wednesday. Yes, happy Wednesday in November now. Oh, I'm so excited. Finally, the good part of the calendar year is here. The best thing about this time of year, everyone knows, is that Adam likes to make lots of stews and soups and stuff like that. The things that allow me to use my Dutch oven, which is the greatest invention <laughs> in the world. It's true. Everyone knows this. Do you, what kind? What kind of Dutch oven do you have? I have a Staub, which I can say was recommended as the best Dutch oven by the wire cutter website. <laughs> but I had bought it years and years and years ago. And I only bought it because it was an, an, a huge discount at some store somewhere that I don't even remember. It was such a huge discount that I felt it was worth buying. So I actually bought two. Oh, my gosh. Well, the other one was a gift and one I kept. And I absolutely love it. Use it probably more than almost anything except my cast iron skillet. The two most essential things in a kitchen, right? I mean, probably aside from a knife, I guess. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> the licorice Staub um, sort of, there's a battle out there. Oh, I'm sure. We have licorice Dutch oven, which I kind of do like the look of better just aesthetically um, than the Staub. I think the Staub is a little more flat on top where the licorice is sort of a rounded lid and i know this is a ridiculous way to pick your pot you know i'm i'm someone who oftentimes will buy wine based on the label so this i admit but i have i do really love all the le creuset stuff we also bake bread in our dutch oven yes i've heard of people doing that i did read once about a no need bread in which you can make it in a dutch oven have you done that um i always need bread LOL. I don't think that we've done that. We, um, we actually, so, you know, so sometimes you can just bake, you put the dough itself in the pot, but recently we've been baking it in a pan, like a little bread loaf pan, but then inside the Dutch oven. Creates a lot of air circulation, gives it a crust or something. Yeah. So you do the first part of it with the lid on and then take the lid off, but it just gives it a really great crust. I think we should maybe have, we could have like some kind of uh, Dutch oven derby between the Le Creuset and the Staub sometime. Well, speaking of Le Creuset and yes. Staub, Adam, what did you make this week? Every once in a while, I think I've spoken about this in the past. I try to make something exactly as the recipe tells you to make it. For some people that sounds weird, but I tend to always mess things up and make things eventually just the way I like them. And I make a lot of adjustments to the way I cook. But I realize, especially when I'm reading in a magazine or a cookbook, something that is specifically regional uh, and is made perhaps a very traditional way, I say, okay, I'm going to try that because that's the only way I'm going to open up and widen my sort of palate and sort of flavor spectrum. You know what I mean? Yeah, so you're saying that when it's something that's like, specific to a different culture or like a classic item from someplace else you try it first to make it exactly like the recipe says i do okay. and so i was looking through a recent food and wine magazine and i stumbled upon a dish called chupin de pescado and the first that sounds fishy 
It is fishy. Yes, of course. Pes- pescado. You know, that's that's the, that's the fish word in Spanish. <laughs> and it just it, the picture, of course, I'm usually attracted by the picture when you were saying that uh, sometimes you get wines because of the labels. Sometimes I buy books based on the covers. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm, really, I'm really bad that way, too. So the picture looked really cool because it was a sort of a layer of potato rounds you know, sort of like coin disc type pieces of potato laid yeah. in tomato-y skillet. And I do love my cast iron skillet. And so what it is, is a fish stew, which does have a layer of cooked potatoes on the top that you then roast in the oven. And it came out really great. It's really delicious. And I'm going to make it a part of my rotation of good wintry dishes to make. Because as summer changes into fall you don't necessarily want the same kind of fish that you have in the summer but you still want to you know fish it up if you know what i'm saying what are the components of this dish besides like what was the prep time like um the prep time wasn't as bad as i thought when i first saw it it had three different things that you were making you know it said make the potato rounds but you just boil them and then peel them and slice them and they're cooked and ready to go and then there's something called the pomerola which is basically a tomato sauce and then there's the chupine, which is the part that includes the fish. So, but all of them assemble fairly quickly. The chupine includes chickpeas and a good, strong, firm white fish. They did grouper. Okay, so I changed one thing because we don't really have grouper up here. So I used a cod loin um, okay. in- instead and chickpeas and olives and roasted red bell peppers and capers. So you can see it sounds very strongly flavored, Mediterranean, almost, um, I would say, something that in common what I think of almost as almost a Portuguese dish as well uh, with that flavor profile. And basically, you pretty much just assemble it, put it in the oven, you lay the potato rounds on the top and roast it for about 35 minutes. Um, The only thing that I did differently than its instructions was when I t- pulled the potatoes out, I felt like they didn't look toasty enough. So I put it yeah. back I put it back in the oven for about five minutes on broil so that the potatoes would brown a little bit on the top, just for my own aesthetic needs. Um, and it was delicious. Absolutely uh just really great. You don't really need to put anything with it except if you want some crusty bread or salad or something like that. And that's what I made. This sounds a little bit like aquapaza which is a sort of, you can make it more stewy or more soupy depending, but it's kind of like an old timey Italian dish, but it has fennel in it, but it's also got, it's all these tomatoes and capers and onion and then the fish and parsley. Like it sounds very similar, but I like the addition of olives in the chupin that you're talking about and the potato. The olive potato and chickpeas are what make it kind of special and different than something that you would think of making yourself because sometimes there are combinations that aren't a daily sort of occurrence for us food wise so it was really great to sort of have different ingredients that go together better than you think of because the chickpeas have a nice little bite to them but i will post the recipe because it isn't also um i i had it in the paper magazine but i i found it online as well so i will post that recipe because it's really great it's really fun and it's it's also what they call a one dish type of food although i guess it isn't sounds like you had to use a lot of dishes to make it but you mean it's cooked all in one pot 
It, I all right. So it culminates in one dish, but you're right because you have to make the potatoes and you have to make the tomato sauce. The the tomato sauce, the pomerola, you make separately, but you can make enough of that to use it more than once. Uh, it's really good. Well, that sounds like it could be good. Like you're saying, if you made extra of it, you could then throw it on pasta or rice or whatever once absolutely. your fish is all gone. <laughs> yes, absolutely. And and you can see once you make it. Now I say, okay, I could make it with this fish or that fish, or you could even make it with shrimp. Um, so that is what I made this week or in the recent times anyway. Hold tight, hold tight, put a rack back in my Mama, streamers and sauce, and then of course. What about you, Sarah? What did you make? Well, I'm going to tell you, but first I'm going to say it would be funny if we ever had to like eat the things that we made that we tell each other about at the same meal. <laughs> one of um, these days. One of these days, because what I made this week, I don't know if you could get further away from what you made than what I made. <laughs> I made midnight oatmeal raisin cookies. That is a, that is a really nice wide range between one dish and the other. Yes. I mean, to be fair, not a dish, um, a, a, a biscuit, as they would say on the Great British Baking Show. That is part of this story because we were watching this a little bit later at night. And um, because anytime we watch that show, inevitably by the time they get to the showstopper, we our sweet tooths have engaged and we just really need to bake something or make some kind of dessert. So I said, what is the simplest thing I could do right now? that I have the ingredients for, and it was oatmeal raisin cookie. So I actually just Googled easiest oatmeal raisin cookie on the internet. And I think I did, I got it. Um, this recipe had no salt in it, and it also had no um, spices of any kind and no toasting <laughs> of the of the oats. So I, I loosely followed the recipe, but I did actually toasted the oats with cinnamon before I used them. And that made a major difference, I think. But when I was dishing them out onto the um, cookie sheet, I said, I thought these look like the worst. They look like they're just made out of glue. They just looked so pale and strange that I thought they would be absolutely terrible. But I underbaked them just right. So when they came out and cooled just a little, they were had that little crunch on the outside and they were soft on the inside. I used two different kinds of raisins, golden and not golden. And I, you know, when you get your raisins right out of the cupboard, they're kind of tough, like the way that raisins are in Raisin Bran. I sort of rehydrated them a little by soaking them in boiling water for a few minutes and then patting them dry before I put them into the um, cookie batter. So I think that helped. Within this recipe is a good tip because there's several things where I thought of doing that where it didn't even say to do it in a recipe where I soaked uh, raisins or currants or something like that. It really does enhance things and elevate the the whatever you're doing. Normally, if it wasn't late at night when I was doing this, and maybe if you're just making a more adult cookie, you can soak your raisins in bourbon or Cointreau, if you're making like more of an something that has like a citrus going on in it, but you can soak your raisins in a little bit of booze and that maybe save that for a little closer to the actual holidays, but that's a fun trick too. Cool. And so they came out good. Chewy? 
they did. They were really great. And then, and then of course we ate the cookie and we were happy, but then we were saddled with like 36 more cookies that <laughs> we shouldn't have in the house. So we were eating them. We were like splitting them. I brought, I'm just trying to give them away, you know, because I just actually like the process of baking. I do like the result. Don't get me wrong, but then I just want the one. I don't want all of them. So I don't bake nearly as much as you do um i barely bake at all to be honest and but then i i know that if i have a certain kind of baked good if it comes out successfully let's say um that then just like you it's going to be around the house and i shouldn't be eating an entire loaf of something i always try to plan it so that it's something that i can bring to someone else <laughs> yeah speaking of which i would like to thank you slash Unthank you for that delicious loaf that you brought us from PB Boulangerie. It had like candied orange peel on top. I think you remember when you came to our house and you delivered it and we said thank you. And we had some slices. It was gone by the next night, like the entire thing. I'm a little bit mad, but also it was delicious. <laughs> I did notice when I brought it that it came out all very quickly and it was sort of like, oh, let's taste a little bit of this. And then I realized that there was a lot of reaching back to maybe just taste a little more. And I realized this is this is going to be gone pretty fast here. <laughs> it, it was. So hats off to the bakers at PB Boulangerie. That was delicious. But don't ever bring one here again. Yeah, that's their white chocolate loaf which looks really good. And then and this one was sort of special because they did, they dressed it up with some, they don't always do that where they put some like orange peel on it. So um, I have to I, say when, when you announced, when you told us with the name of it, that it was a white chocolate loaf, I was like, Oh gosh, because I detest white chocolate. I hate the taste of it. I can't, if I had to pass a test telling you what was in there, I never would have said white chocolate. So, you know, that's a perfect segue because I had in mind as a subject for today's program, a question for you and for listeners out there. Are there things that you have cooked in the past in which you have not revealed all the ingredients because then a person would not have eaten it? And the second part of that, obviously, is that in some cases, you have to absolutely tell people that something is missing or something is in it. Um, but then are there times where you either leave something out or leave something in and then have not told the person who might be eating this, who is a guest or a friend or a customer? Um, and do you have any ingredients like that, that you've done that in the past? Well, yes. <laughs> to be fair, I would never make something with meat in it for a vegetarian, you know, like, right. But I would never, that's like mean and weird. Yes. But yes. Correct. I, I do make a chocolate cake that is phenomenal and it's made with mayonnaise. And some people hate mayonnaise so much that if they even thought of mayonnaise being inside a cake, they would go insane but really all mayonnaise is, is oil and eggs, which are separately inside cakes. So there's a lot of recipes out there. I use my friend's grandmother's tried and true chocolate mayonnaise cake recipe, but it's really just an emulsifier. It's really just eggs and oil, and it makes the most moist and delicious 
chocolate cake you've ever had. But for my mayonnaise hating people out there, you know who you are. They don't know they're eating. Well, now they do a chocolate cake made with mayonnaise. Well, yes, my my spouse, Natalie, uh, detests mayonnaise, won't even say the word. And I have contemplated in the past because I keep seeing um, recipes for roast chicken, which is coated in mayonnaise. And I don't know how I could do it at home because I'd have to uh, destroy the evidence, you know, the jar or whatever, if I were to use something that I hadn't made myself. Um, so that that's definitely one of them. I, I can't even confess on the radio that I may have had something that contained mayonnaise that Natalie ate because <laughs> I, I could get in trouble. Mayonnaise is actually the secret ingredient also in the best grilled cheese that you'll ever have. So you just, instead of butter on the slices when you're grilling the grilled cheese, you use mayonnaise. So again, it becomes just a way, you know, like in the cake, it's making it moist. On the grilled cheese, it's making it crispy. So it like disappears. I think people that hate mayonnaise hate maybe the smell, whatever, or the sensation of it on other things in its perceptible form. But once it's become once it's given itself fully to whatever it is you're making and it's no longer perceptibly mayonnaise i think that's okay and a little side note to this when i was in i went i traveled twice to russia in the 90s and uh the second time that i went to russia i noticed it more than the first because i was hosted often by a family and they cook with mayonnaise all the time the Russians love to cook with mayonnaise, as do a lot of Eastern European uh, sort of former Soviet bloc nations. And it did get a little tedious at times. <laughs> um, but there were certain things, for instance, like chicken uh, that they would cook with mayonnaise that was actually quite good. Um, and especially if you don't have a lot of butter and butter is expensive in some places. And it was there for sure when I was there. Um, it was a good substitute in a way. But I agree there is sort of like things that are a um a moral fine line like you said like i won't i wouldn't ever put uh you know a a meat product in something with vegetarians and obviously when we discuss this if anyone has an allergy i would never not tell anyone (laughs) that there was something like that but there like you said there are times where there will be things like i make things dairy free a lot and right like you don't necessarily need to say oh there's no Unless you've used almond milk or something and someone has an allergy, right? Like you said. Right. An interesting or perhaps funny story that I heard one time. Many years ago, I was at a restaurant and I ordered, they had very fancy coffee in a French press that they would serve at the end of the meal. And I remember saying, oh, could I have decaf? Because if it gets like, oh, after five o'clock, I'm just somebody who, you know, is wide awake for, you know, until like five o'clock in the morning. Uh, So they said, sure. And then I was actually with people at this restaurant who were involved in the ownership of the restaurant. And they said, you know, we tend to serve decaf coffee to everyone later in our shift, because it is better to err on the side of not giving caffeine than giving it to the wrong person. Is that something you'd heard of? Uh, Something I practice for my 30 years working in restaurants. (laughs) So it is a common practice then. Sometimes you'll run out of the decaf. And if all you have is caffeinated coffee, you just have to say, 
we're out of that. <laughs> you just have to be clever about it, but it's definitely something that happens. I do it all the time when I worked in restaurants. Everybody's getting decaf because we're not making two different pots of coffee at 10 p.m. <laughs> well, all right. Um, so listeners, if you have a long drive after you've had dinner, remember you might want to stop at Dunkin' or something to get a real cup of coffee. <laughs> you the queen in my coffee you're the salt in my stew you will always be my necessity i'll be lost without you there is another side to this which is especially a restaurant-based thing but not only is i remember traveling in large groups sometimes in my old career where you'd be in different countries in different places and there were some people that were uh, not as sort of open-minded to every dish they had. And they would often say, what is in this? And I always thought it was interesting because I decided there's no point in asking what's in a dish. Obviously, unless you are a strict vegetarian or a vegan or that sort of thing. Otherwise- Or you have a massive allergy to right. sea urchin or pineapple, like right. I do. Oh, okay. <laughs> Obviously, then you ask. But if you're asking just because- you want to avoid something because you don't like something. There's two things that are going to happen. My feeling is if it's delicious and then I find out something horrific is in it, then that will have spoiled everything. My question is this, could it be that someone who hates mayonnaise would consider mayonnaise so horrific that the delicious chocolate cake would then be a nightmare if they found out afterwards, like, I think what you were talking about, like something horrific is like the brain of an animal or a full bodied cricket. But like to some right. people, mayonnaise is that horrific. Would it, you got to ask Natalie, like if she knew that mayonnaise was in a chocolate cake, would she hate the chocolate cake afterward? Like find out. I want to know listeners, anybody out there hate mayonnaise? Tell us what you think. Send us an email at food on the radio at gmail.com. And you can also check us out on Facebook, once again, Food on the Radio, and Instagram. When we're back from the break, tips and tricks, the Provincetown Food and Wine Festival, and goodbye to an old friend. You're listening to Food on the Radio on WOMR 92.1 FM in Provincetown, WFMR 91.3 FM in Orleans. The voice, the spirit of Cape Cod. You can also find us at WOMR.org. So, Sarah, I'm one of those people that still continues to buy paper magazines around and about food. And one of my favorite ones, which is the thinnest and probably price per page, maybe maybe as high, I don't know, is Cook's Illustrated. But it's, oh, yeah. But it's quite good. And in some ways, it's good because it just gets to the, let's say, the meat of the matter, so to speak. But the funny thing that I found that I was going to talk about in terms of Cook's Illustrated, and it was something that I sent to you, is they always have with this sort of old-fashioned drawings. They have... I think that's the illustrated part, right? Yeah, I guess so. I guess that's why it's illustrated. So anyway, they have tips, but sometimes the tips I find are really silly. Um, and sometimes they're useful. There, were, there was one in particular where it said to 
cut up the frozen pizza. So because you don't always want the whole frozen pizza. <laughs> and it said that you have to defrost it slightly so that you can cut it and then refreeze it. And I just felt like a tip should be a shortcut. <laughs> and uh, well, Yeah. Also, like, who doesn't like extra cold pizza in the morning? Like, that's crazy. Yeah. yeah. Um, but it had one that I think I sent to you that I thought was very funny, which was to expand your cookie cooling space to take the cover off of an ironing board because I guess a lot of them have a kind of a, a grid or sort of screen grid kind of top to them and use it to cool cookies on. And I I just thought of the fact that does someone make that many cookies? <laughs> I mean, yes, I would say no, like it's the holidays. People are like making cookie boxes like around the clock. People make tons of cookies. I feel like that could be a good tip, except that I feel like the ironing board in question that is in the illustration, which we'll share on our Instagram. I don't know how many ironing boards are are still like that, where you can just move the cover off and it's like a metal grate underneath. I feel like I'm I'm curious. It just it's making me wonder about are ironing boards still made like this, or are they some other fundamental uh, material inside where you you can't just take the cover off and have a giant wire cookie rack. <laughs> I agree. So I, I I just wonder if after the publication, there are that many people that are making cookies and putting them in ironing board tops as a drying rack. But it's a cute little illustration and you never know. So once again, listeners, if anybody has other hot tips that they would like to add or maybe send to Cooks Illustrated. Uh, and if anybody has ever used an ironing board for a cooling facility, <laughs> let us know. We would love to hear about all kinds of tips, ideas, and recipes. So send us an email at foodontheradio at gmail.com. So Adam, this weekend, well, starting tomorrow, is the third annual Robinstown Food and Wine Festival. Have you ever been? I haven't, but I can't wait to check it out. Well, it looks pretty exciting. It um, goes from tomorrow, the 2nd of November, through till Sunday. There's lots of events, and they're actually, the theme this year is local food for global wines. So they're actually highlighting a lot of the stuff that is produced in our local area at this time of year. There's Wellfleet Oysters and the East Ham Turnip, Provincetown Clams, or will all be featured. Um, the thing that looks the most exciting to me is taking place on Saturday night. It's the local food, local lore, immersive dining experience. And that's going to be at the Crown and Anchor with um, Chef Raina Stefani, who I think is the Crown and Anchor's new head chef there. But she's actually so awesome. She grew up in Provincetown, in fact, and she is part of the beginnings of Terra Luna. She ran that restaurant for a long time, <laughs> passed it off to her longtime sous chef, Tony, who's been running it since like 2010. We just found out the saddest news. You just sent me this article. Yes, it was in uh, the October 11th Provincetown Independent that I saw that Terra Luna has closed after 30 years. And I am just crestfallen to hear this news. I'm just going to say it. It's my favorite restaurant. It's the, the one. Cave. 
It's the one I always recommend to people, whether they're in Wellfleet or Provincetown, because they don't think of what might be in Truro and they sort of go, you know, where they're near to. And it's the first thing I recommend. I think I actually must have gone to Terra Luna in its first year <laughs> from my recollections. And it is it was just wonderful atmosphere, great bar, beautiful decor in a very sort of rustic fashion. And they had my absolute favorite pasta dish which was a sort of a sausage and clams and tomatoey and delicious. And I, they also had the hay and straw, which was a chicken pasta dish and a million other things that they've made over the years and really good cocktails and just a great place to either sit indoor or outdoor. And um, I just always thought of it as a Outer Cape institution and um, very much heartbroken that it is no longer around. It always seemed like it was a part of the Outer Cape life. Really, it really does. I'm so also like I I think I told you last time you were here. I'm like, oh, they're this is their last weekend. You should get out there. And I didn't know it was the last weekend. <laughs> and I'm so gutted because it's just a magical place. Like going in there, you just feel like you're entering into another world. It's just dreamy. It is my favorite, favorite yeah. place. Yeah, it was. And it was I hope whatever this ridiculous lex vest group who bought the property and now they're doing what all these terrible organizations do is raise rent drive people out like i don't know what they're gonna do what are they gonna do there make it a starbucks <laughs> well i don't think that's gonna happen so i, I suppose we, we have every right to give people a chance to do something good but tara luna thank you for 30 years of delicious food and uh lovely times thank you well, once again, it's the end of our show, Food on the Radio on WOMR. Thanks to everybody for listening. Bye, Adam. Bye, Sarah. Take a seat